Well, that was beautiful to be able to hear all of our voices join together. A little taste of heaven, right? When all the voices of the redeemed will cry out for all the ages, hallelujah, what a savior. We can never exhaust the praise that is due to him for all that he has done for us. As we come to God's word and open it together, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, knowing that we cannot come in our own righteousness, that we could not climb our way to you. We needed a Savior, and you provided that by giving of your own Son. And so we just want to praise you this morning. Thank you for the salvation that we have. And I pray as we come to your word now that you would indeed kindle in our hearts that joy that you intend for us to have through the gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be familiar with David's words in Psalm 51, where after his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and his confession before the Lord, he prays that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. Maybe it's a prayer that you likewise have prayed, following in David's example, asking God, please restore to me the joy of my salvation. As believers in Jesus Christ, we want to have that joy that comes through Christ. And yet there are many forces in this world and in our lives that threaten our joy, is there not? Disappointment, unmet expectations, broken relationships, pain, suffering, our sin can rob us of our joy. And so Christians can find themselves depressed in spirit. The river of joy seems to dry up. And the flower of joy that once was so bright and beautiful has now wilted and we're not quite sure how to recover. But for those of us who know Christ, this should not be so. And we know that, which is why we pray that prayer with David, restore to us the joy of our salvation. We should be joyful because of all that we have. We should be able to know true joy that stands the test of time and can weather the storms. And so our passage this morning is going to help us to recover that joy for us. Remind us why we as Christians can have not just some joy, but the greatest joy of all. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 24 this morning. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 16 in which Jesus sends out the 72 or 70, depending on translation, you can refer to last week on why there's a difference there. But they traveled a specific route ahead of Jesus telling people about that the Messiah, the King, was coming preparing for Jesus to come along behind them. And so they preached this gospel of the kingdom. They healed, and as we'll see today, they cast out demons as well. 
They went out in the power of the Lord. This week, we're going to see the success of their mission. Were they able to have any success? We'll find out as we read our passage today. These are essentially missionaries who were sent out on a mission and now are returning to give a report. And they come back full of joy. Let's read our passage before us, verses 17 through 24 in Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This morning, in these verses, I want to draw your attention to three catalysts for joy that we can have in our salvation. These are three reasons why you today can have joy in your salvation in Christ. You see, when our joy is weak, it's often because we have lost sight of the truths of our salvation. We've set our gaze of our soul upon other things. And so today, we need to look at our salvation anew and kickstart our joy. That is what the joy that God intends us to have. So the first catalyst for our joy is, number one, to rejoice in the privilege of your salvation. Rejoice in the privilege of your salvation. And we're going to see this in verses 17 through 20. Here, verse 17 begins that the 72 have returned. Again, the difference between the 72 and the 70 is a, is a textual issue. And it's pretty split either way, which is why some translations go one way and some go the other. But again, it doesn't have a doctrinal bearing upon the text. We're going with 72 because the English Standard Version has done that. And they come back very excited, excited to share what God has done through them. It says, notice that they returned with joy. Luke explicitly wants to state their mood and their emotion upon their return. They didn't just have a message to share. They had emotion that went with it. And so th their hearts were full of joy. I can just picture them as they are all going back to some designated meeting spot. We don't know where that is. And as they trickle in from across the land, no doubt they meet up the pairs. You know, they went two by two. And so then the one pair meets another pair and they start sharing their stories. And then they meet up with another pair. And so as, they're, as they start trickling back to that central meeting point, there's a murmur. There's, there's laughter. There's excitement as they are excited to share what happened and what they experienced as they went out on this mission. And finally, they come to report to Jesus 
saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're, they're almost shocked that this was a reality, that the demons responded to them. Now, just to be clear, demons are spirit beings who were originally created by God. They were angels in the original creation, created good by God. But when Satan rebelled against God, a third of the angels of heaven fell to and followed him. And just as good angels do the bidding of God, so fallen angels do the bidding of Satan. In the scripture, in addition to being called demons, they are also known as evil spirits or unclean spirits. Satan, contrary to popular belief, is not some man in a red suit with a pitchfork. Satan is too a spirit being, having no physical form. He's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, the ruler of this world in John 12, and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, and simply the evil one in 1 John 5. And from this we see that in this present world or age, Satan has been given a certain degree of authority by God. John, in 1 John 5, says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This doesn't mean that Satan has the ultimate sovereign sway over this world. God is Lord of all, and no one will supplant that lordship. But Satan has been given a degree of power in this age so that John could say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan and his demons are enemies of God and God's people. They seek to deceive believers derail God's plans, and blind the spiritual eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel. But we must not think of Satan on one side and God on the other and think of this as some sort of yin and yang in which good and evil are absolutely equal and they're vying for power. No, as I said, God is Lord of all. He is the ultimate supreme one. And therefore, the army of light is greater and stronger than that of the army of darkness. God is sovereign. Satan is not. God possesses all power. Satan does not. And as these 72 went out, they realized that reality. They realized that demons were subject to them. God, Jesus, had given them authority. And they were able to cast out demons. He says that they were subject to them. We don't know if Jesus told them, hey, go and cast out demons because we don't have that in what we saw earlier in the chapter. He doesn't tell them that they would have that authority, but they come back declaring that they did. They're surprised by their ability. But notice that they didn't do this amazing action in their own power. Notice that they knew where this came from. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They realize for us to be able to do this, for these demons to, to respond to us, it's only because of the power of Jesus. It's only because of the name of Christ. And so, therefore, they went out trusting in Jesus, believing in the power of Jesus, and truly representing him, being his representatives on his behalf to Israel. And we can relate to their joy here, right? We can't make the same declaration that demons are subject to us in the same way, but we know the joy of being used by God in ministry. 
being used by God to help others, being used by God to advance the gospel. Isn't it deeply satisfying to be used of God to help bring the light of the gospel to a sinner trapped in darkness? Isn't it so thrilling to be able to bring the truth of the word of God to a discouraged brother or sister and to bring gospel hope to that discouraged soul? We too can experience the joy of being used by God. And I believe it's that reality here that these 72 are, are basking in. But as Jesus sees their joy and hears their declaration, he then turns to talk to them. Look at what he says in verse 18. It says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus tells the disciples that as they're out preaching the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, and as they are casting out demons, Jesus was watching Satan fall. Now scholars go back and forth on what exactly Jesus is alluding to. You'll hear some that will say, this is Jesus saying, in eternity past, I saw Satan fall from heaven when he first rebelled against God. Others will say that this is Jesus saying that uh, he is seeing what will happen to Satan when he goes to the cross and his rises from the dead. And still others that say that Jesus is seeing Satan's future fall and ultimate destruction as recorded in the book of Revelation at the end of time. While this might uh, allude back to a past event or prefigure a coming event, I don't think what Jesus saw here is any of those events. Because the context doesn't really suggest that there was something past or future that Jesus has seen. In fact, the verb that says saw, I saw Satan, is in the imperfect tense, which simply means that it wasn't a single event that Jesus saw. It was over a period of time. And so I think there was instances of Satan falling like lightning from heaven. In other words, he says that while the 72 were ministering, he was watching something go on at that present time. And so he saw these flashes of defeat that were taking place. As the, as the 72 cast out a demon, he saw a defeat of, of Satan. We don't know how he saw this, if this was a vision, if he knew of what was taking place in heaven or in the spiritual realm, but somehow he was seeing this. And Jesus says it was like lightning. It was happening over and over again, like a lightning storm. But the point that Jesus is trying to make to these disciples is that their ministry struck a real blow to Satan and his forces. He's saying, yes, the demons were subject to you, and not only did you affect the demons, but you affected Satan himself in what you did in my name. This is amazing. These men were being used by God in the great battle against the prince of darkness, you know, if, they, if, if their jaws were open when they, when, when they showed up to Jesus, it just hit the floor when Jesus told them this. Jesus continues to encourage them by describing the protection that he offers them against the powers of Satan in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He grabs their attention by saying, behold. Again, in an oral culture, you have to have ways of, of getting people's attention because you can't bold a text or whatever. You're speaking these things. And so the word behold is often that verbal thing to cause people to say, hey, listen up. 
And he says that you'll have, you'll have power, authority over the enemy. Now, I don't believe that this is to be taken literally, that there are literal uh, serpents and scorpions, that these 72 were to walk out and to go find these, uh, these critters and to uh, actually step on them in the name of Jesus. I believe these poisonous creatures are symbols of the spiritually poisonous work of Satan and his demons. The imagery of Satan being a serpent is, is clear throughout all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, Satan is described as a snake, as a serpent. You're well aware of Genesis chapter 3. After the good creation of man in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted, the snake, the crafty serpent came in to tempt Adam and Eve. It, it, he begins by showing his face as a serpent. And then you, you fast forward all the way to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, he's described as the ancient serpent. Why the ancient serpent? Because it references all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He's been a serpent since the beginning. Scorpions seem to also have been included in this devilish imagery as evidenced in Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 6. And so to tread on them means to have victory over them. To have victory over these demonic powers. Jesus is promising that they will defeat them. That they will not, these powers will not have authority and power over them, but they will have power over the enemy. Jesus therefore says that nothing shall hurt you, end of verse 19. I don't believe that this means that these disciples will never experience any sort of pain in their life. I think it's saying that these that, that Satan and his demons cannot fatally injure these disciples. These forces of darkness will not overcome them. They may try, but they're not going to inflict any sort of fatal damage. And in a similar way, I believe we can see this promise in our own lives. As we go through this world, we too are protected from the attacks of the evil one because we are in Christ. We do not have to be in fear of what demons and Satan will do to us. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul writing to believers in Rome. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Or 1 John 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Friends, we stand with the victor. Jesus Christ, who conquered Satan at the cross, dealt a death blow to him and will one day ultimately defeat him as Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Sure, Satan may inflict physical suffering on us as he did to Job, but in, he will not destroy us as we stand with Christ. And so this is the great confidence that we have as we minister in Christ today to know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the spiritual forces of darkness, against the forces of Satan in this world, but we can be assured that we will be protected and that Satan will ultimately be defeated. God will have the final say. Amen? Amen. And so after this rousing declaration of the disciples' victory over Satan and his demons, Jesus throws a curveball. Or rather, he puts those great ministry accomplishments in perspective for these disciples. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names 
are written in heaven. I don't believe Jesus is saying to stop all rejoicing. Wipe that smile off your face. You shouldn't be rejoicing in that power, that ministry that you have. I think this is a language of comparison. Don't merely rejoice in that. Don't have that be your greatest joy. Rather, your greatest joy should come the fact that your names are written in heaven, he says. In other words, he's saying, above all else, you should be rejoicing that you are saved eternally. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, you have great spiritual gifts, but don't rejoice merely in this. Your names are written in heaven. He says, yes, God has used you, but more importantly, your names are written in heaven. Yes, you've seen great success in your ministry. God seems to be blessing you. But more importantly, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This idea of a list of the redeemed saints, the list of God's people written in heaven is found in the Old Testament in places like Exodus 23, verse 32, and Psalm 69, verse 28. But it's revealed in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that this list will be rolled out at the end of days, at the end of time, and be a record of who is to be saved, to know who will be welcomed into heaven, who will be among the redeemed. New Testament writers pick up on this reality, again, picking up from the Old Testament. Paul speaks of it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 talking about a book of life. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, verse 23, likewise talks about an enrollment of the saved. And when you turn to the book of Revelation, speaking about the end of days, it's mentioned several times. In Revelation 3, verse 5, 13, 8, 20, verse 12 and 15, and, and chapter 21, verse 27. But this reality that Jesus wants these disciples to see is that they should be rejoicing most of all because of their salvation and their names are written in heaven. And this too should cause us to have joy this morning. We can find joy in this great reality. Our greatest joy should not come from our giftedness, from our skill, from our ministry success, from our intelligence. There is certainly joy in being used by God as we said earlier. The fact that God would use this brings us great joy. But if our greatest joy comes from ministry successes, then the temptation for pride and arrogance is close at hand. For us to think that we are great, to take joy and pride in what we have done, when in fact we should be in wonder at the very reality of our salvation, to realize that God would use us one who does not deserve to have our name written in heaven, doesn't deserve to be counted among God's people, and yet he's chosen us. And so, believer, you can rejoice in the fact of your salvation this morning, the fact that your name is written in heaven. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that your name might be written in heaven. Because if it might be written in heaven, what kind of joy would that bring? Well, I'll cross my fingers. That's going to bring more anxiety than joy. No, it is written in heaven. That's a fact for all who have trusted in Jesus. And Jesus wanted his disciples then and us today too to have assurance of our salvation. 
We can know that God has written our names in his book if we have thrown ourselves upon his son. So Christian, rejoice that your name is not written in man's book somewhere here on earth, but your name is written in God's book in heaven. This world clamors to be added to all sorts of lists. They want to be on this person's top list and this organization's top list on the good list of the world. But friends, our greatest priority and our greatest joy is that we're written in the book of God, our creator. And because it's written in God's book in heaven, your name is secure. You see, God didn't write in pencil with an eraser. He can't go back and erase your name out of the book. It's forever etched there. It cannot be removed. Jesus didn't say, well, you can rejoice that your name is written in heaven now, but I can't tell you about later. No, it's written in heaven, and so it's an eternal cause of joy. When people are truly saved, they cannot lose their salvation. Their name is etched in the record of heaven, never to be removed. And so, believers, we can rejoice in this. No matter what's going on in our lives, we can recognize that our name is written in heaven. Believe it, your sin cannot erase that name out of the book. The world may attack and tempt you, but it cannot cause your name to be removed. The devil may try all that it can to barrage you and seek to renounce Christ, but your name, he cannot cause your name to be removed from God's book. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And this should give us great joy. You belong to Christ. You belong to him. He's yours. He said, don't lose sight of this reality, of this great privilege to be counted among God's people. And if you keep your eyes set upon this, then you will have a cause for joy in all your circumstances and all your trials. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford wrote this. He says, I wonder many times that ever a child of God should have a sad heart considering what their their Lord is preparing for them. God is preparing great things for us. Our name is written there in heaven and we'll see him one day. And it should be a cause of joy all our days. So first, we rejoice in the privilege of your salvation. Secondly, this morning, we're going to see that we should rejoice in the grace of our salvation. Rejoice in the grace of your salvation. And we see this in verses 21 through 22. After speaking to the disciples, Jesus turns toward his Father in prayer. And notice the, Trini- notice the Trinitarian nature of these verses. Who's praying? It's Jesus, the Son. And it says in verse 21 that it's, he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and he's praying to the Father. And so although we see this diversity of roles within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's an indivisible unity among them, which is why we can speak of one God and not three. But notice what it says here in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In the New Testament, we have many statements about Jesus' sorrow, about his grief, particularly as he's approaching the cross. But this verse here is the only explicit statement of the joy of Jesus in the Gospels. In 
And it's important to realize that this word for rejoiced is, does not mean that Jesus kind of cracked a smile. You know, like, hmm. No, this, this word for rejoice is a dynamic word. It, it could be translated, he thrilled with joy. He, he was exceedingly glad or rejoiced greatly. It was an outburst of joy. He, he turns from his disciples and he turns instantly to his father with, with great joy and a smile across his face from ear to ear. What caused such an outburst? What caused the gospel writers to record the only place of, his, of joy of our Savior? Well, let's look at it in verse 21. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He begins by praising the Father. And by calling God his Father, in this simple title, Jesus, Jesus was making a claim to deity. We see this clearly in John chapter 5, verse 18, where it says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is why the, the title, the Son of God, is so significant. We today get hung up on the son, and why is he the son if he's equal? And, but they recognize that as a son, by saying son, it meant he had the same qualities, the same essence of the father, and therefore even his enemies understood he was making himself equal with God. And notice the God that he claims to be equal to. In verse 21, the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He shares that glory as Lord. But Jesus here in his abundant joy is thanking the Father for the Father's sovereign work of election and revelation. I mean, verse 21 here, he clearly says that God hides the truth from some individuals and he reveals the truth to others. It's revealed to little children, but it's hidden from the wise and understanding. Who are these two groups? Well, I believe that in the context of the first century when Jesus is writing this, the wise understanding is best understood to be the religious leaders of the day. Those who claim to be wise in the nation of Israel, who claim to have all the knowledge, who claim to be the teachers of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the keepers of the law. But I think it can also include the secular rulers of the day and the secular philosophers of the day, all those in that Roman world at that time that claimed to be the wise and understanding ones. Who then are these little children? It refers to Jesus' disciples. In chapter 8, Jesus talked about those who, who believe, who come as little children, who receive the truth as little children. And so, these little children are, are those who, the, the men and women who have believed in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, those who came to faith in God like a child, with the humility and the confession of a child. He says, You, Father, have hidden these things from wise and under, the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then look at the phrase he adds at the end of verse 21. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus acknowledges that this action of hiding and of revealing, or there's even a play on words in the Greek that 
can come through, better if we translate it, concealing and revealing. There's almost a rhyme that's, that's there in the Greek. You conceal these things to some and you reveal to others. And that action of concealing and revealing, Jesus says, was a part of God's gracious will or a part of his good pleasure. In other words, God doesn't do this reluctantly. He's not, oh yeah, I guess I'll get around to that. This is something God delights in. This is something that's part of his gracious will. It's good in his sight. It's pleasing in his sight. In other words, get this, God delights in being sovereign over salvation. God delights in his sovereignty over salvation. Now, before we get too far, we need to recognize that Jesus also delights in this, right? Remember what we said, what is Jesus' emotional state as he's saying these words? He's exclaiming with great joy, praising his Father at his sovereignty over concealing and revealing. Jesus goes on in verse 22. We'll look at verse 22 and then pull out and look at what this, these verses are teaching. Before someone can claim that the Father and the Son operate differently, Jesus goes on to show the unity that they have in this work of election. Jesus makes the astounding claim that he has been given all things by his Father. Verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. He says, it says a similar thing in John chapter 13. Jesus realizing all things have been handed over to him by the Father. This world and the people in it all has been given to the Son. He's been given jurisdiction over it. There's nothing that falls outside of this. It's a very broad designation. We know from Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that all things were made through Jesus and were made for Jesus. And by this, Jesus is sharing that the Father has exclusively given him ownership of all things. In other words, Jesus shares the sovereignty with the Father. But then Jesus makes some peculiar statements about the Father knowing the Son and the Son knowing the Father. He says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Jesus is saying that it's only the Father who inherently knows the Son. In other words, the Father is the only one who doesn't need to be introduced to Jesus. He inherently, from before all time, knows who Jesus is. Everyone else, every single person has had to be introduced to Jesus. But the Father is the one who knows him. And the same is true the other way around. The Son is the one who knows the Father, and the Son is the one who reveals the Father. He's the one who introduces people to the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18 says that the Son came to make the Father known. He says that no one has seen the Father, no one has seen God, but Jesus, the Son, the Word made flesh, came to reveal the Father to the world. You're familiar with John 14, verse 6. Jesus says that no one comes to the Father but through him. And after he spoke these words in the next verses, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He reprimands him by saying, I have been with you and shown you, and if you have seen me, if you know me, you know my Father. Jesus claiming to be the ultimate revealer of the Father. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 22. He says, No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus, too, sovereignly chooses to whom he will reveal the Father. And so as we pull back and look at these two verses, we see a picture of God's election of sinners. God choosing who will know who he is and those who won't know who he is. God's gracious salvation of sinners is the work of both the Father and the Son, and we know the Spirit as well, although that's not included in the discussion here. God has chosen whom he will save and who he will not. He, it says he rejects those who are seen as wise and smart by the world standard, and he elects those who are seen as nobodies, those who are seen as, as little children. And again, it is in this very reality of God's election of sinners that Jesus finds thrilling. Thrilling. And I believe it should bring great joy to us, his people, as well. God's sovereignty and salvation shouldn't cause us to frown, but should cause us to smile from ear to ear. I want you to see this doctrine played out in other scriptures as well. And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here Paul is talking about this reality that God rejects those who are of the worldly elite, those who claim to be the most educated and smart and think that they don't need the Lord and that he often chooses those who admit that they are nobodies, that they are nothing, that they are, have nothing before the Lord. They're spiritually bankrupt. Look at verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, there's that electing word, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord here Paul makes it clear that many of the most educated brilliant people in the world are the most spiritually stupid those who do not understand the things of God and this was God's choice 
Now, it doesn't say that God cannot save those who are in the elite classes of society. For he says, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were of, uh, or powerful. But most are not. What Paul says here is that God takes the nobodies in the world. Those who see themselves as recognizing that they have nothing by which they can come to God, that they are morally and spiritually bankrupt. He takes them, and those are the ones that he has saved. And so that's why he ends the, the passage here in verse 31 to say, to let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If there is salvation to be found, it's only because of the work of God. It's only because of the sovereign work of God that there, there can be any sort of boasting or rejoicing. But let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 to continue to see this idea of God's selection of sinners for salvation. Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to look at verses 3 through 6. Paul, the Apostle Paul opens this letter to the Ephesians by saying this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. First, I want you to notice that this passage begins with praise. Once again, we're in the context of exuberant praise to God for what he has done. Just as Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and praised God, so here Paul begins by blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is he is overflowing with praise because of the spiritual blessings that come to the saints. And where do those spiritual blessings begin? They begin in the eternal counsels of God. As verse 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The church, the saints, have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world for salvation. They have not been chosen because they were faithful or because they were holy, they were chosen so that they might be holy, verse 4. In other words, God chooses sinners to make them holy before him. In love, it says, he predestined us for adoption as sons. And this is according to his, the purpose of his will and all to the praise of his glorious grace. We've got a praise sandwich going on here where he begins and ends with praise to God. He's going to go on. We don't have time to look at this whole passage this morning. But Paul is overflowing with joy to God for all that he's done for the saints. But here, clear that God is the one who elects, who chooses his people for salvation. But the flip side of this doctrine is also true. If God intentionally chooses some unto salvation then he also intentionally does not choose the rest. You can't claim a choice for some and claim that God unintentionally leaves the rest. 
If you've got a selection of something before you and you choose two of the five, you're intentionally not picking up the other three. The same is true with God's electing plan. And this is what our passage in Luke 10 tells us. Friends, I'm not trying to make this up. This is what our text drives us to. Is that Jesus praises the Father for concealing and hiding the truth of the gospel to some. And this is hard for us to grasp. It's a hard doctrine. Not hard to understand maybe intellectually, but hard to grasp emotionally. Which is why many can agree with R.C. Sproul, who, when he first came to see that this doctrine was taught from Scripture, he says, okay, that's what the Bible teaches. I have to accept it, but I don't like it. He went on to not only like it, but love it because of what the Bible teaches. But we recognize the difficulty in enjoying this as Jesus did, as Paul did. But let's turn to Romans chapter 9. Paul here, as he's discussing Israel and the role of Israel in the greater plan of God, he's forced to deal with God's election of his people. Answering the question, has God cast off his people? Has though that nation, Israel, that he chose, he elected, has he gotten rid of them? The answer is no. Those who are his, he has chosen and selected eternally. But there are those that he passed over as well. And so let's look at this illustration of God's electing choice in verse 6. It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This illustration couldn't be more clear. God, as these two twins were in the womb, God elected one and didn't elect the other. And it's not because he looked upon what they might do in their lives and made a decision based upon their choices because Paul explicitly says that though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order for God's purpose of election, God's choice to be made clear, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God made this choice. Now we hear this and say, wait, you love one and you hate another? We say, that's not fair. And Paul anticipates that. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unfair? By no means, he says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul says, no, God is not unjust. God can do whatever he wants. God does not have to stand in our courtroom and be put on trial and defend himself. He can do whatever he wills. Verse 18, he can have mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And friends, let's just think about the justice of God for a minute. If all of us were to receive the justice of God, what would that look like? Friends, that would be all of us being punished in hell forever. That would be justice for our sins. That very reality of our depravity and the the punishment that it deserves, we have to get over before we can even begin to contemplate the election, the sovereign election of God. Because if we start with mankind being somewhat good and we don't realize the depth of our depravity and what that requires before the justice of God, then we'll never get to this point where we can stand back and wonder and awe and rejoicing and saying, God, you can do whatever you want. Paul anticipates another objection. He says, wait a minute, so if God is the one who hardens and God is the one who chooses, then why does he find any fault? Why can he still punish people in hell? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for his glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul has us all sit down and shut up before the sovereignty of God. Who are we to question God? He is the one who is sovereign in these things. God can do what he wills. Now let me be clear as our passage in Luke 10 says that the Father has concealed the truth from some and revealed the truth to others, God does not make anyone sin. God's hands are pure and holy. He is clean. He does not tempt anyone. James chapter 1 is very clear about that. God is not getting involved in forcing people to sin. By hardening people, by concealing, he's merely removing the good that they may remain in their sinful state, headed towards the punishment that they justly deserve. 
And this doctrine, again, as I've noted, causes consternation in us. We wrestle over these things. Paul knew that people wrestled over these things. That's why you hear him arguing with this, this imaginary person. But some Christians trying to resolve these difficulties end up making man the determiner of salvation instead of God. They don't like God being responsible for both salvation and damnation. And so they say God's predestination or election involves him looking down through the corridors of time and seeing what people will do, whether they'll choose him or reject him. And for those that he sees will choose him, then he elects them. I have three responses to this. Number one, nothing in Luke 10, where is our passage today, or any other passage for that matter, gives any indication that God is at the mercy of people's choices. In fact, as we've just seen, Romans 9 is very clear. It depends not on human will or exertion. It depends not on what choices they will make for the choices made before they were born. As we saw in Ephesians 1, we were selected before the foundation of the world. God's choice is made prior to human action. The second response is that, as I already noted, total depravity makes this reality impossible. God can't sit back and wait for sinners to respond or look to see what they will do because they can't respond on their own. A dead person cannot come out of the grave on their own. God must initiate. Spiritually dead people cannot make a decision to believe in Christ without God giving them new life first, and he gives new life to those whom he's elected. His electing choice precedes us responding in faith. If you've responded in faith, it means God elected you before the foundation of the world. The third and final response I have to this is that it's an important principle just to remember, period. And it's this, that whoever does the work gets the glory. Whoever does the work gets the glory. At work, if you do the work, you get the promotion. If you're credited with doing the work, then then you get the credit. In this case, the glory. If man is ultimately responsible for salvation, then he gets the glory for salvation. But the scriptures are clear that we had nothing to do with our salvation. Yes, we believed. Yes, we put our trust in Christ. But that was only because of God's work in our hearts first. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. It's our last passage outside of Luke that we'll turn to this morning. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, remind us that we had nothing to do with our salvation. It was nothing that we could take credit for. It says, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, all the language of grace and mercy and richly bless, friends, this is God's salvation of sinners. And this is the point, the point of this passage in Titus and the point of Luke chapter 10 as we turn back there, and it is this. God saves sinners from beginning to end. 
and therefore he gets all the glory and he gets all the credit for all of eternity. God in his grace through Christ has saved us. He's revealed to us the truth of the gospel. He's enabled us to believe. We are not saved because of our religious works, because of our intelligence, because of our schooling, our ingenuity. Our salvation is all of grace, friends. Because God chose us to receive salvation. That is all of his grace. Why did he choose me? I don't know. It's all because of his grace. It's in his secret counsels. We don't boast because of some sort of elevated status that we have. We are humbled by this reality that God would choose sinners such as us, that he would graciously reveal himself to us, that he would conquer our sin and our deadness to make us alive in Christ. Once again, remember, Jesus exuberantly rejoices at this fact. We, too, should rejoice in God's sovereignty. So, let us use this passage to remind us to praise God for his grace in saving us. He didn't have to, and yet he chose to do so. All praise to him. The third and final catalyst for our praise this morning is to rejoice in the timing of your salvation. Rejoice in the timing of your salvation. Verses 23 and 24 in Luke chapter 10, it says, Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said to, said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is saying that these disciples have something unique, something that they can rejoice in. And that is that they live in a time where they're able to see the Messiah. The kings and prophets of old in the Old Testament era longed to see this time, longed to see when Israel's promised one would show up and here these disciples are talking with him, seeing with him, and seeing his ministry. They are a privileged few. Jesus says that kings and prophets desired to see what they saw and to hear what they hear and were not able to see it. And so they were privileged to be born in the time that they, that they, that they were. And so Jesus wants them to be filled with joy as they contemplate this reality. He says, blessed are you based upon the timing of when you were born and what you're able to see. And I believe it reminds us today that even though people were saved before the cross and, and, and we'll meet them in heaven, we have an extra privilege having been born after the cross. We're able to be participants in the new covenant. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the cross of Christ as the great display of God's love for us. And as Gentiles, we've been grafted into God's promises of salvation. And we are in Christ, even though at one time we were alienated and without hope in the world. And so we too can rejoice in the timing of our salvation, that we were born when we were born, that we are given faith to see what is recorded here in the scriptures. And so as I conclude, we must remember believers of the privilege and the grace and the timing of our salvation. If we lose sight of these, we will lose our joy. The Christ wants us to set our gaze upon these, that we would continue to rejoice all our days here on earth and into eternity for what God has done for us. But I can't finish this morning without addressing those of you here this morning that do not know Jesus Christ. We've been talking about salvation. 
We've been talking about having our names written in heaven. And if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, your name is not written in heaven. It is, you do not know salvation. But let me give you the good news, and that is you can know that salvation today. If you would turn and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus this very hour, he will receive you and your name will be inscribed in heaven for all of eternity. Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Jesus stands with open arms before you today. Do not let this day pass. You do not know what tomorrow will hold. You do not know what, when your life will end. I don't say that to scare you, but simply to have you face reality. Salvation is available to you today. Do not pass it by that you might know the security, that you might know the joy, that you might know the privilege of being a part of God's family. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, you can go home today confident that you have salvation in Christ. The book of Revelation records that all people one day will stand before Christ at the great white throne of judgment. And that book that we talked about, that book of life, it's going to be rolled out. And it says that if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he will be thrown to the lake of fire. You need to know the consequences of your choices. If you choose to reject Christ and live life your own way, then you are choosing an ultimate just punishment for your sins. But God has provided a way of salvation. I pray that you take it today. If anything that I've said causes questions or concerns, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to be able to dialogue with any of you about what salvation in Christ means. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Truly, Lord, we have not deserved our salvation. And yet, through Christ, we have experienced an eternal redemption. Our names are recorded in heaven. Oh God, I pray that your saints here today would truly grasp the depth of that reality that they would be truly humbled by your grace and that it would spark great joy in their hearts no matter what is going on in their lives. We know that in this world that we will have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world and we will ultimately have victory one day and it's in that we hope and in that we rejoice. And it's in his name we pray, amen.